Trotters and Sorores, the Vice President of the Supreme Council of Amorc, Frater Cecil A. Poole. To become proficient in the use of the principles contained in the Rosicrucian teachings, the individual member must study and gain skill. The techniques or the way of doing things is the basis upon which success in any system of study is made possible. To gain a technique, one must practice until that technique becomes like a habit. No amount of knowledge will take the place of a technique. One does not learn to swim or to play a musical instrument by reading a book. The actual process of practicing is the only way to develop a technique. A technique is the utilization of knowledge and must be gained by one's own efforts. I am now going to discuss seven important Rosicrucian techniques. This discussion may increase your understanding and through understanding give you the desire to practice and improve each of these techniques in your own experience. The first is meditation. Meditation is a process by which the mind is able to digest that which it has perceived. It is well illustrated by a parallel concept of physical digestion. Through all the channels of perception that man has, physical and psychic, there enters the mind many, many perceptions. Some of these constitute no more than a fleeting glance or sensation that hardly produce any more response than a vague impression. Such perceptions do not usually make a profound impression upon the consciousness and the behavior that results. Other impressions are vital and strong. They usually enter consciousness accompanied by an emotional experience. That is, something that amuses us and causes us to laugh may be remembered better than a fleeting impression that has no emotional accompaniment. Of course, that which brings us pain and grief also by the emotional overtone may profoundly impress itself upon consciousness. With all that man perceives, learns, and adds to the total state of consciousness, which he stores in memory for future use, which he gains by inspiration from others or by any source, must be meditated upon if it is to become useful. There are other living entities besides man that can learn to talk, not well perhaps, but to a degree. A parrot that can talk well could be taught to say profound words that express the thoughts of the greatest thinkers, but they would be of no value because they are in a sense like a physical object being unused, that is, it is inert. Knowledge and experience to be useful must be formulated in consciousness into those impressions, conclusions, and motivations that cause man to act, to use the experience and the knowledge gained. Therefore, meditation is a dynamic process. It is a process that man should use to take inventory, to review what he already has experienced and learned, to assemble this knowledge and experience into usable form. Some seem to mistakenly believe that meditation is a state of doing nothing, when one just relaxes, closes one's eyes, and literally does nothing whatsoever. This is not the true concept of meditation. In meditation we should direct our consciousness within but toward what we already know, 
we should analyze our experiences. We should seek to discover new connections between items of knowledge that we already possess. The great discoveries and achievements of man have been as a result of man's thinking, of his meditation. Before the electric light was invented, all the necessary knowledge for the invention was within the mind of Thomas Edison who invented it. It was within his mind that he put the parts together that produced the end to be achieved. The man who fails to meditate, who fails to take time to put together and try to arrive at new conclusions and ideas from his knowledge and experience, is failing to live a full life. He is like the squirrel who hides nuts in a tree but does not go back to collect them and eat them when food is scarce. Meditation is the means by which man coordinates his knowledge and experience, regardless of the source, whether it be physical or psychic. Meditation leads to a balanced, well-rounded existence, to new vistas, new horizons, in short, to harmony. The second technique is concentration. Concentration is the most active and dynamic potential of a human mind. When we concentrate, we direct all our being through our mental processes toward a selected end or aim. True concentration is a volitional process. It is a process we choose to carry out. By concentration, we are able to direct our attention and to focus our mind upon the matter at hand or the matter with which we are concerned. I am not an authority upon the principles of physics, but I believe it is an elementary fact that certain types of lens focus light. Probably most of us know from childhood experience that a double convex lens can direct the rays of the sun to a point where it can cause fire on a piece of paper or dry leaves, and no doubt as children most of us perform this simple experiment. This is a physical illustration of concentration. The sun's rays at the time they enter one side of the lens are deflected and scattered, but the lens directs all these rays to one point. We see in this illustration a potential force in a scattered form entering one side of the lens, and as a result of passing through the lens, the scattered rays of the sun are concentrated into an effective force. What simply seems to be light striking the hand on one side of the lens can become fire when it strikes a dry paper on the other side, or it can become the experience of pain if it strikes the back of our hand at the concentrated, focused point. Now man can use his mind in the same way. The mind becomes the lens by which we direct our mental energies and forces and the psychic faculties of our being at a particular point. The process of concentration is to direct our entire consciousness, that is, our thought, toward one point. Usually we direct concentration toward a problem that we want to solve, and if we do this properly and follow the instructions that are given in our Rosicrucian monographs, then we direct our entire consciousness, excluding every other thought from consciousness, toward the one point and the solution for which we hope or for which we seek. Then by dismissing the idea upon which we concentrate entirely from our mind, we allow a force greater than our own consciousness, a force of which we are a part, to take over and execute that which we have brought into being. 
Just as we allow the sun's rays passing through a magnifying glass to cause fire, we do not make the fire. We permit a greater force to be directed to a point where the fire evolves, so we can permit a greater force to take over the problem which we have visualized and upon which we have concentrated, and through its own means to execute the end for us. Man proposes, but God disposes, is an old saying. This is true in concentration. We can propose what we want to do and what we prefer. If we concentrate properly, we can bring our wishes to the proper focal point. But the final disposition will be how the cosmic forces working upon our incompleted processes complete them just as it might be conceivably possible for the sun's rays to produce cold instead of heat the laws of the universe cause heat to be produced so it is that the cosmic will work upon our wishes if we properly concentrate upon them and if we will accept the cosmic cooperation we will gain in stature in understanding in experience and eventually in cosmic illumination the third technique is intuition. Intuition is frequently called the sixth sense. The five physical senses with which we are so familiar are the channels by which we perceive the world outside our physical body. The sixth sense, intuition, is the channel by which we perceive the cosmic, the divine impulses that come from the source of our own creation. It is then theoretically possible through the channel of intuition to have access to all knowledge, truths, and wisdom that exist anywhere in all the universe. It is theoretically possible through intuition to partake of the nature of God itself, to be all-wise and all-knowing. However, in order to use intuition to such an advanced state of perfection, there are two important factors that we must understand. First, we must develop the ability to use the sense of intuition, and second, we must provide the capacity to absorb the knowledge and wisdom obtained. The ability to use the sense of intuition is to be gained as are all our abilities. When a child is born, it cannot focus its eyes. In other words, it cannot use the physical channel of perception known as sight until after some period of time it gains the ability and the use of perception through experience. There are many adults who have not perfected the use of this perceptive quality of sight. Most of us see things of which we are consciously unaware or fail to notice a occurrence that pass before our eyes within our field of vision, and this is equally true of all our sense faculties. Witnesses who have testified in court have given evidence to this fact. In other words, the physical sense faculties have to be developed, educated, and evolved, and so does the sense faculty of intuition. If we are so bound to the physical world in which we live that we do not listen to this still small voice within us, then the impressions made to the channel of intuition are left unheard, unperceived, and we are unaware of the knowledge that they bring. We are therefore given simple exercises early in the Rosicrucian teachings for the purpose of developing the intuitive abilities that already lie innate within our own consciousness, just as the ability to perceive by physical means lies ready within our bodies at birth to be evolved and developed.
The second necessity for the use of intuition is the capacity to absorb the knowledge and wisdom that can come through the intuitive channel. One cannot learn calculus or any other form of higher mathematics until they learn simple arithmetic and other lower forms of mathematics. So man must live, gain in knowledge, either through his experience or through the participation and experience of others, familiarizing himself with the knowledge that others have amassed before him. The total knowledge of human experience and history of the earth is a prerequisite in a sense to other knowledge. By being familiar with the universe in which we live, with the knowledge and experience in which all men can share, and having a sincere desire to participate in the wisdom of God, we make ourselves open to such knowledge and wisdom, and thereby, when we perceive intuitive glimpses or hunches, we are able to associate them with certain needs and make them useful. Those who will direct their attention to the self within, who will from time to time turn their consciousness upon themselves and meditate and concentrate upon our inner self, will cultivate the ability to become aware of the impressions that enter consciousness through intuition. The fourth technique is initiation. Initiation brings into the realm of reason the purpose and into the realm of emotion the spirit of one's introduction to the mysteries. This quotation written by the Imperator is the most comprehensive definition of initiation that has ever been put into words. Initiation is a difficult concept to limit to a few words. Because of the fact that so much is involved in the initiatory process and purposes, any attempt to further define it is to limit the idea. We do know that man is prone to mimic and to daydream. Therefore, whether or not man has an innate sense or instinct of curiosity, we do know that man has a propensity towards imitation. Children play their own made-up games, usually based upon imitation. They may imitate the family unit of which they are a part, each playing a different part than that of themselves. They may play a game involving other people that they know in their own community, school, church, or some other group in which they participate, or they may even go further and possibly with some adult direction they play games that take on the characters which they never knew personally but of which they have learned, such as Robin Hood or Wyatt Earp or some other individual whose adventures or life appealed to them. We are, even as adults, prone to be a part of participation in an imitating or performing act. The plays upon the stage of the legitimate theater, the motion picture screen, and the television industry would not exist if it were not for this desire of man to project himself into the performance of a play, either real or imaginary, or to actually take part in one. In other words, man is a performer. He secures satisfaction and enjoyment through participation in certain types of activities. Man is also a learner, but it has been proved psychologically that learning becomes more efficient and more complete when it can be coupled with some type of a participation process. 
Children in school are frequently taught new facts by a process of play-acting. Initiation, then, is a means by which man's learning process and his attempt to attain the highest ideals possible are put into a performing pattern. By initiation, an individual, either by watching an initiatory team or participating in the initiatory process, goes through certain movements that set the proper environment and tone of the situation to better help him attain a degree of understanding and of knowledge. The Rosicrucian Order is known as an initiatic organization. That is, its initiations are not for the purpose purely of entertainment, but rather to inspire. The initiatory process, as is given in the initiatory degrees of the Rosicrucian teachings, and as performed in the Rosicrucian lodges, aid the individual in gaining the proper point of view, the proper mindset that will help him to achieve the evolvement and direct him toward the cosmic consciousness he hopes for. So it is, as the Imperator has written in his definition, that the initiatory process makes it possible for man to have a better realization of the purpose of the mysteries that is, the knowledge of the cosmic and the universe. The process of initiation helps man to relate these purposes to the reason by which he analyzes most of the physical world, and it also makes it possible for him to realize the spirit of the mysteries by gaining sensation of feeling and depth in their realization. In other words, it relates the individual to the feeling that accompanies the process of growth and evolvement. Thus, initiation is a dramatic act that helps man experience the realization of his place in the universe and his intimate personal relationship with the cosmic scheme and his awareness that there is more to life than the physical which he perceives about him. The fifth technique is visualization. Visualization is mental perception. We loosely apply the term visualization to almost any mental process that is a reproduction of the actual physical process of perception. This is done because many people actually visualize. That is, by closing their eyes, they imagine they are seeing an actual scene as they first perceived it by the sense of sight. Some people have better auditory memory than they have visual. I happen to be one of those individuals. I can better recreate in my own mind sounds that accompanied an event than I can the visual appearance of the event. But if I referred to my mental perception of an event that took place an hour ago, a day, a month, or a year ago, I would say in general terminology that I was visualizing the event over again, although my actual mental process would be that of again hearing the sounds that accompanied the event. Visualization, then, we might say, is the process of recreating a mental perception. To be able to visualize well is the result of having given proper attention to an event in the first place. If a situation, a fact, or a condition is impressed upon consciousness thoroughly and completely, we can recall it easily and, in a sense, see it all over again. Things with which we are familiar and deal with frequently are usually the easiest to visualize. 
one can shut his eyes and see his home, a room, or office, or workshop, or something else with which he is familiar. It is sometimes difficult to visualize individual human features, but we can easily visualize the total of a group of individuals. This may be due to the fact that visualization or recall of situations that existed is spread over a good many items or conditions, rather than any one's individual appearance. Visualization insofar as being a Rosicrucian technique is related to concentration, that is, it is a creative process. When we visualize in connection with concentration, our purpose is to mentally create a situation. When we visualize by recall, we are simply bringing back to consciousness that which we have already experienced. When we visualize in the process of mental creation, we are creating a situation that we want to experience at some future time. In other words, an individual who is ill will visualize a state of health. An individual who has needs will visualize situations that will fill these needs. And by so doing, if we concentrate properly upon the visual image that we have created in our mind, we are bringing up to reinforce our visual concepts the creative processes of the soul, of the inner self, which will help us bring these visualized conditions into a state of actuality. Therefore, we are taught in the Rosicrucian teachings to develop the ability to visualize, to practice it whenever we can, so that we can clearly conceive, either through sight or through another sense faculty or combination of these faculties, a situation. It is well when a person has idle time to practice visualization. I am now looking at a picture on a calendar on the opposite wall of my office, and as I dictate these words I close my eyes to see how well I could see the details of that picture. After a number of trials I find I increase my ability to reproduce in my own mind the picture. The same process can apply to something that we wish to attain. We can visualize a situation to which we aspire or for which we hope, and if we visualize it clearly enough, we are using the creative ability of our mind to bring this situation into a state of actuality. The sixth technique is assumption. Assumption is a concept based upon the process of assuming ourselves to be functioning as a different entity from what we in reality are. To practice assumption is to assimilate the experience and to a degree the consciousness of another entity. There has been in much religious literature a great deal of mystery surrounding the concept of assumption. Many religious leaders have practiced assumption in order to speed the understanding of their message to the mind of others. In the tradition of most of the world's best known religions, there are references to assumptions by the avatar or the master of the lives and the consciousness of those who hear their message, that they may be able to use the channels existent about them for the perfection of their message. Surely an individual as intelligent and as evolved and with the access to wisdom that such men as Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad, and many of the great philosophers and masters have had 
could not conceive of his message being grasped in its entirety within the lifetime that he had to share with his followers. Those who followed the teachings of such masters could learn only the periphery of their ideas. In a sense, therefore, these masters had to attempt a forced system of teaching, bringing to the minds of their followers their ideas in such quantity and with such force that it would make an impression that would reverberate through the centuries after they no longer existed as physical living beings. Assumption was probably the process used to accomplish this end. When we assume the identity of another individual, we do so in order to try to impress upon that individual the importance of a fact, a bit of knowledge, the wisdom of a certain type of action. In accordance with the instructions in our monographs to accomplish the process of assumption, we mentally visualize and conceive ourselves to be the individual whom we are trying to impress. We should imagine ourselves taking on the characteristics of behavior and even appearance of that individual. And then when we have thought and concentrated upon that to the point where we conceive ourselves to be momentarily that individual, we implant the thought or idea in our own consciousness as if it were in the consciousness of the other individual. By this process, we should be able to influence other individuals toward higher ideals, toward noble purposes, toward the gaining of knowledge, provided the individual is to any degree whatsoever receptive to our thoughts. Assumption cannot force knowledge, action, belief, or ideas which are wholly unacceptable to the other individual. Just as a hypnotist cannot make an individual perform an action which that individual is morally and ethically opposed to performing, neither can I by assumption cause you to do anything that you do not volitionally choose to do. In other words, no human being by any mental process can cause another individual to act against that individual's will. Assumption is a process of planting the seed. It must be accepted and grow within the consciousness of the individual in whom it is implanted. We are not our brother's keeper in the sense that we are responsible for that individual's behavior. We are responsible only for fulfilling our obligation to provide the means of giving the proper direction, of offering the help, of implanting the idea. Our obligation then ceases. Eventually, all of us must act upon our own, but those who aspire toward cosmic consciousness, toward higher ideals, assume the responsibility of transmitting, transferring, and implanting these ideals both by word, by deed, and by the mental process of assumption within the minds of others so that all men may eventually direct their attention and consciousness toward their Creator. The seventh and last technique is projection. Projection is a process of the extension of consciousness. The Rosicrucian philosophy holds as a fundamental principle that time and space are purely physical conditions. They are in a sense limitations of the physical mind. Time is in reality no more than the duration of consciousness. Space is no more than a gap in our ability to perceive. Therefore, consciousness transcends the limits of time and space. 
Consciousness is a continual process of conception within the mind. The mind of man is also the instrument of recall and creation. That consciousness should be limited to the physical brain of an individual is purely an assumption that has grown out of a materialistic philosophy. Consciousness does not necessarily exist in my brain. The brain serves as a medium for its expression, but consciousness is in every cell of my body, and it can expand into my aura, and even beyond that, into the area about me. When we speak of projection, we are concerned with this expansion of consciousness. Projection is the ability of consciousness to take over in areas removed from us in what we ordinarily consider the realm of time and space. When I project, I become conscious more acutely of a situation that may lie beyond the physical limitations of my being. We are so readily familiar with the situation immediately about us that projection seems to be a very strange phenomena when it is first presented to an individual. Possibly our first experiments with projection should be limited to nearby places, that is, projection into the next room or into a place with which we are very familiar and is nearby, because it helps break down this illusion of space and time to which we are slaves under so many other circumstances. Projection is not a process by which we satisfy curiosity. Even if an individual attains a degree of perfection in the process of projection, it is not necessarily for the purpose of eavesdropping on someone else. We cannot enter the privacy of another individual's consciousness regardless of how perfect our ability to project may be. We can only go where we are permitted to go, in a sense. We can only expand our consciousness into areas where it will find harmony and attunement with itself. Otherwise, consciousness ceases to be a continual and extended process. Consciousness should manifest as a continuing process, and to interrupt it is to cause a break in that continuity which would make projection impossible. Some individuals have asked, what is the value of projection? There is no particular value that we can obtain by projecting, except upon occasions when it can be used for vital information that could not be obtained otherwise, except possibly through mental telepathy. We can influence other individuals, or at least do our part toward influencing them by assumption. Many times, processes are combined, Meditation and concentration, for example, are not always individual, separated items. Neither is assumption and projection. Possibly the most valuable use of projection is for those individuals who have to, for some reason or another, separate themselves from the vicissitudes or problems of their immediate environment. There is a classic story of an individual wrongly imprisoned who spent many years in prison. His jailers believed he would drive himself mad by the process of isolation, but by projection to a loved one, he maintained his sanity and his close relation from the time of his confinement until the transition of both him and his loved one. So it was that during recent times, many of those individuals in concentration camps during the Second World War 
and those who have been confined in countries under certain forms of government that restricted their action and movement have been able to maintain their involvement, their sanity and growth by the process of projection away from the problems and hardships of the moment. Therefore the process of projection is a technique by which consciousness is extended in order to remove ourselves from the immediate environment. It is a process of fulfilling our potential ability to recognize the idea as of more importance than the material. It permits us to take our proper place in the universe unfettered by the limitations of time and space.